This is your last opportunity to take home with you a copy of the book. If you order it from New York, it will take several weeks, at least, for your order to be filled. I know that all of you will want a copy of this profound work, so you may obtain copies in the booth in the promenade. Concerning meals, dinner will be served in the cafeteria until 6.30 p.m. to take care of AAs who are leaving this evening. There will be a meeting of the delegates promptly at 1.30 in Committee Room B of Convention Headquarters. Dear friends, it is needless for me to tell you that one cannot stand before a great gathering of this kind without being filled with the deepest and the finest emotion. All of us know that God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Through the ages he has worked through divinely inspired men and women who have carried his message far and wide to various segments of the people of this great universe, that they may be inspired and that their problems may be solved. He sent to us, among others, St. Francis of Assisi, who at one time was obliged to beg for his living, and yet who later lavished his attention and his affection upon the poor, particularly upon the lowly despised lepers of his day. He sent to us David Livingston, a missionary, a man who took God as we understand him into the depths of darkest Africa. He sent to us George Washington Carver, the noted Negro botanist and scientist who at one time said, in the peanut we find food and clothing and shelter. 
and medicine as well. God, why did you make the peanut? And he answered his own question. Ye shall know, and your knowledge shall set you free. He sent us Joan of Arc, the maid of Orleans, heroine of France, burned at the stake. She died with undaunted fortitude. And nearly five centuries later, she was beatified and subsequently canonized by Pope Benedict XV. He sent us Helen Keller, from whom he took away her eyes, that her soul might see a way to bring faith and hope and courage to all those who have no sight. On this beautiful Sunday morning, filled with sunshine and hope, it is a glorious privilege for all of us to gather together here, hand in hand and heart to heart, and give thanks and adoration to God that he sent us Bill, that through him he has seen fit to release us from bondage. Just as God gave the world Francis of Assisi, Livingston, Carver, Joan of Arc, Helen Keller, and other great servants of mankind. So in his wisdom and in his compassion, he gave us Bill. And Bill, with his vision and his faith, his love and his patience, and his indomitable courage, has shown us a way out of the wilderness. Shall we follow? It is with deep humility and with a sense of thanksgiving which words cannot express that I now turn this meeting over to Bill. And with hearts full of love and undying gratitude, we rise to salute him. assembled together here this morning to thank God, the Father of Light, 
for all those blessings he has bestowed upon us who have been the children of the night who issued from darkness into light among the greatest blessings that we can count are the friends of AA this great auditorium was presented to us for our use by this we want to give thanks for all that great and I think it is most appropriate that all of us visitors record our love and gratitude for the hospitality that we have received not only at the hands of the people of this city but of certain people and I refer to our AA friends in this town who have done so much to make us feel at home and I am thinking of some of those who have especially devoted themselves to this. I mentioned a couple. I think we ought to have a standing vote of approval, let us say, for a couple of them, say George and Louise, who have done this job. Francis of Assisi and to me he is one of the greatest exemplars of that kind of giving that demands no reward the giving that has no price tag on it his is the perfect description of the 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous Oh, if we could only relate ourselves to the world around us and to our families as we relate ourselves to the alcoholic we're trying to help. If the phone rings and somebody said, here's a job for you, do you mind running over and seeing this suffering couple? At any time of the day or night, we go. And on arrival there, we find that the drunk is very obstinate. He says, I don't want any part of this. My wife got you here. Get the hell out. Do we feel rebuffed? Do we feel rejected? No. 
Not at all. We give the wife what information we can, what comfort we can. We tell her to go to a family group meeting if there's one around. We tell her how she can manage better. And without the least sense of rejection, we come away with a glow in our hearts. Then we are called to the next house. And lo and behold, the alcoholic is ready. Ah, says he, you've painted a picture of me. Yes, I am one of you. So we take him to a meeting. And there he finds a kindred spirit. Somebody else. Maybe we hardly see him again. In the eagerness of his identification with this new fellow, he neglects us. Us who linked him to AA, now saving his life. Do we feel rejected? No. We say, well, how he's getting along, how much 12-step work he does. Maybe he even declares that he doesn't like us. He confesses our sin. Are we affronted? No. We say, get over that, and maybe I have got some sins, too. And then we go to the third house. And our friend comes into AA, and that is the beginning of a lifelong companionship between this stranger and the one who made the visit. Well, that friendship was the extra dividend of the kind of giving that demands no reward. We offer what we have, and what comes back is the extra dividend. This afternoon, you will see AA functioning as a worldwide entity with this same kind of giving, kind of giving that demands no personal reward. And yet the extra dividend of it, which so many of us found in this very place, is just beyond measure. But this sort of giving is not all. There is something else to the AA life, something that I myself have sorely neglected. In the excitement and joy of this giving, and in receiving its rewards, I have too often forgotten 
that God has supplied me with these blessings. Therefore, this meeting very properly concerns itself with our relation to God. In the giving, we receive meat and drink and great sustenance. But what human being can live on meat and drink alone? Must he not breathe, take in air, if he is to be a going human concern? Well, I like to think of the grace of God as the spiritual air that we breathe, if we will. And prayer and meditation is the means by which we do it. So we are devoting this meeting to breathing in the grace of God. Our first speaker is Jim from Washington. Jim's story appears in the new AA book, second edition. And I suppose the starting of Jim's group in Washington is one of the epics of AA. And by his good wife, has probably sheltered more drunks under her roof than anyone else in AA. It's all right for us to praise our friends. They can take it. I'm not going to eulogize Jim. He can mighty well speak for himself. the fourth rung of the ladder 
certainly to the bottom. Today, our theme is to try to convey to you what God means to us. Thinking back over my early childhood days, I happened to be born in a small town in Virginia, having been exposed to a very strict religious doctrine, Baptist, possibly you all know, not the Baptist of this generation, but of the one of the past. It was Sunday school in the morning, 11 o'clock service, BYPU at 6, services at 8, Wednesday prayer meeting, and Thursday preaching. So I was well indoctrinated. There's no doubt about that. All of that was apparently so well and so good. until there came a time in my life that I was no longer able to accept the God of the good ministers of that day, the God of my mother, and also of my father. My mother being really a religious fanatic in that she thought not only of her religion on Sundays, but apparently, as I can remember, during the whole of our waking hours. I'd like to leave this thought and pick it up a little later on. I wish to tell you just a little of my bringing up in this Christian home. I remember at a very early age, the first fear that I remember was the fear of the verse funeral. I remember turning to my mother and asking her, Mother, will this man or will this woman go to heaven or will she go to hell? It was a great concern of mine. Along with a great deal of the other effects of the neurosis that my mother carried. I mean, such things as lightning, the summer storm, she would close us in a dark room, pull the blinds. I never remember my mother as a kid going to bed without first looking under the bed, although she'd been home all day. And I remember as a man, after having 
been exposed to the elements. The first time that I was in actually a bad electrical storm driving along the road. I remember further the teachings of my mother, so far as womanhood was concerned. Sure, they were all beautiful, and they were all right and just. But I'm afraid somewhere along the line, either I misinterpreted, or on the other hand, I attempted to carry out such strict rules that I became a lone ranger. Because certainly my relationship with the opposite sex was quite different from that of my associates. These were just some of the things that I remember from my childhood. Some of the teachings some of the fears that I was introduced to very early in life. I can remember my early days in grade school. I remember on an occasion, I don't know whether this was the first or not, but certainly on one of those occasions I fought on my way home from school. And as I said, it was a small Virginia town, approximately just about inhabitants of approximately 1,500. Everyone approximately knew everyone else. And some of the good neighbors say to my mother, your son was fighting on his way from school. When I arrived home, if I got thrashed in the street, certainly I assure you, I got a genteel one when I arrived home. My mother, I'm not going to raise a bully. You shall not wind up in a penitentiary. Looking back now on this thing, my mother fortunately is still living. I see my mother now, again, being the neurotic that she was, for she herself had a very bad experience. Her father, who was more than half Indian, when she was a girl approximately around 12 years of age, killed a man with a shotgun. The old man never served a day for it because they called it justifiable homicide. So my mother was the same girl that had gone through that horroring experience. And quite naturally, she didn't want that to happen, not to her boy. So she thought, if she could break me from fighting, that maybe I would never become angry enough to kill an individual. Not realizing the things that she was doing to her boy. Later on, as I grew older, I realized that I'd gotten to the place 
But I had no longer the desire to defend myself. I remember on one occasion, a boy took a basketball because I had tripped him accidentally and threw it in my face and I wouldn't fight him. I don't know what I thought at that point. I know I became angry. Maybe I thought that if he would kill me, maybe he could eat But I say that to show you just some of the fears that I grew up with. Soon, I was introduced to high school. There again, I found that I was out of tune with my fellow classmates. Even at the dances, I had a great deal of trouble Though I had taken the time to take dancing lessons, unbeknowing to my parents, because, of course, the good Baptists in those days, they didn't dance. But I can remember at the time, any time at a dance that I would attempt, always, not sometimes, but always, to cure a certain number of dances. Because I knew that if I was to ask a lady to dance with me and she refused, there would have to be a hole in the floor. I remember one of the incidents that happened in the swimming pool. At that time, we were swimming naked. And a boy made a remark. I walked from the pool, and today I can't swim. But somewhere along in my high school career, I started to take an account of myself, and I realized that I was off the beam in many ways. I played and participated in a few of the athletics, that mostly against my mother's will, because she was always the fear that football was a little too rough. Baseball was all right. The track was okay. She even went to the extent to get a good physician to sign a blank in order that I may not participate in the military activities, the cadets of the high school. Because there again, she didn't want her boy to even think of becoming a soldier. But as I said, in high school, I started to take a little inventory, and I realized that I had many, many deficiencies. But it dawned on me that regardless of all of the inhibitions and the inefficiencies that I may have possessed, that I had one tool by which I could compete, and that was my brain. 
I never had too much trouble in school because I guess I've been blessed with the cousins. I don't know what it is to cram. I've never known, even in college, what it was to spend a, a continuously studying or a complete night, like many of my friends. They up all night, attempt to cram. But I realize now that the gods had been kind to me in that department, and that there I could, if not excel, I could equal my fellow man. And I believe that I use that as a whip for the remainder of my time in high school, through college, and even into my early adult life. I read extensively many books. I was always, at all times, seeking knowledge. I guess for a long number of years, I read on an average of three to four hours each day. And thereby, I was fairly well informed. But getting back again to this theme of religion and God, as I understand him, or the spiritual side of life, I eventually finished school, went into practice, and everything apparently was going along okay. My father, who was a royal, uh, a rural physician, had moved to Washington, D.C. He built up a wonderful practice there. Aside from that, he had a mail-order medicine business going, and things were going along fairly well. In 1928, the death of my father, I don't know just what happened. I know I had a deep love for my father, much more than that that I've ever had for my mother, up to my time that I was introduced to AA. I know at times that I actually despised my mother because I held her responsible for my plight. But from the year 28 to 30, actually wasn't too bad. We apparently were able to survive the depression of 29. But in 32, things started to happen. We didn't make as much money. We had to skinch here and there, possibly to keep some of the worldly goods that we were attempting to acquire. Then we were living in Washington. Something happened to us. A dead child was given to us. This being the second child, a boy. 
I had great hopes, as my father had had hopes in me, that I would have amounted to something. And I had great hopes for my son. I realized that I had taken special efforts before the boy's early training, his early education. I remember as most kids, when they get into foster their first fight, he ran into the house crying. And I asked him what the trouble was. He said a big boy out in the street hit me. I looked out the window and I said, where's the big boy? He said, there he is out there. I looked out. They were about the same size. Well, I said, son, you'll have to go out. If he kills you, he certainly can't eat you. Because I was thinking back of my rearing, and certainly I didn't want to burden my son with the things that my mother, my mother had saddled me. And I believe to this point that he has grown, that I have been able to possibly do a fair job with him. But again, in 35, skipping a few years, a lot of things started to accumulate. A lot of things started to snowball. Some of the things, some of these things I was actually aware of. Others possibly were deep-seated in the subconscious. I know that at a very early age I had been introduced to alcohol, that is, the booze of the prohibition and prohibition days, the corn whiskers, the moonshine, the whatnot. But I realized in 35 that I wanted a drink. I felt the need of a drink. And I can remember now, as plainly as this was yesterday, that I'd go and steal my own whiskey. Eventually, by asked me why I was drinking alone, I lied to her. Under the pretense that I had a cold, that I wasn't feeling up to par, And the majority of you know the story from there on out. It certainly didn't stop there. I went on from that stage to the stage where I would bring my whiskey in the house, drink it, and hide the bottles. Then came the accumulation of bottles I had to lie again. Because they weren't mine. They belonged to my brother-in-law who happened to be living with me. They were his bodies. They weren't mine. I knew nothing about them. Then came the stage where I looked forward to the weekends to drink. It didn't interfere with my normal way of life. It didn't interfere with my family. It was my business. And if I chose to take a few drinks over the weekends, it was my business. 
But there again, there was just a matter of time. When the Saturday drinking and the Sunday drinking terminated into Monday drinking, then came the time that I had to have the morning drink. And from there on out, I had to increase the morning drink until I was drinking a half a pint to get straightened out in the morning. Then there came the time that a half a pint wasn't even sufficient to get rid of the jitters. And of course you all know what happened from there on out. I was just a prudential drunk for another day. It went from bad to worse until it got to the place that I drank daily, day in and day out. Until in 41, an incident happened that gave me a shock. A very dear friend of mine had been in the night before. He had paid me a bill that he had owed me. And on the following night, he came back and said, Jim, over our cocktails last night, I forgot to pay you for last night's prescription for my wife. I said, no, he says, you don't owe me anything. He says, yes, you remember? No, I didn't remember. I didn't remember prescribing anything. I don't remember giving him anything. The following morning, I went to this friend's home. He had gone to work, talked with his wife, checked the medicine. It was okay. But I said to buy, something has to be done. It was all right for me to lose my automobile. It was all right to remember having been in a tavern or at a party at 11 or 12 o'clock got home at four, not remembering where I'd been, what had transpired. Those were bad enough, but this was too much. I knew then that I had to do something about my drink. And it was at this point that I sought the aid of psychiatry. I signed myself into a hospital, a mental institution. It was at this time that I sought help from the clergy. But none of them could give me the answer. The psychiatrist had told me that, that I was basically dishonest. That I may have known. I may not have been cognizant of it at the time. The clergy told me that I was too far away from God, but they couldn't tell me how to find him. The general practitioners merely said that I drank too much. I should moderate. Not one 
of my good friends that told me that I would have to leave it alone completely, that I couldn't drink it at all. They didn't know. They only knew possibly a little something about the dipsomaniac, the individual that drinks periodically. They only knew that they could possibly help me over a bench. But the latter part of 41, after I realized that there was no help for me, I came to the conclusion that maybe my environment was responsible. Most of my friends were drinking possibly much too much. I wasn't the only one that was actually in trouble. There were many of us. Many of us would go to parties and weren't able to drive home. I realized also that I had to close my office. I had no other alternative than to secure a job. So I went to one of my good friends who secured a position with the full civil service region. I worked there a while and I drank, I believe, more because I had a steady salary. All I had to do was to put in this seven hours or eight hours. The rest of the time was mine to drink. I was assured of the salary. Then came the time, I think around in September of 41, that the full service search region was decentralized to Winston-Salem. That was joyous news to me. I remember I went home and told my wife, survive we have this thing licked. I'm going to Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem is a dry city. I won't be able to secure whiskey there. I'm the drunk and I'm sincere. I'm sincere. I had lived in a town where I could get whiskey after hours. I had known practically every bootlegger within five miles of my residence. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that there'd be some bootlegging in North Carolina, but it didn't. I survived with that just lick. That's all there is to it. We'll meet new friends. There will be a new environment. And I will be a different man. Because remorse at this point had just about beat me to death. Not only had I mistreated my friends, my home, the agony that I had brought upon my children, the mental agony that I had thrust upon my wife, of course, at this point, she no longer would go out to social gatherings because I had winched her out, and you know what I mean, to all of her friends every time I got drunk. And if it wasn't that, I had to be called by her to the car and beg someone to drive this drunk home. 
And when I got home, she can't lift me out of the car. And there Sunday morning, if it should happen to be Saturday night in front of the house, in a drunken stupor in the automobile. So long since that she had uh, developed sense enough not to go anywhere with me. But at this point in my drinking, she was my worst enemy. And not only would abuse her, but I would fight her. I think she's a wonderful woman to have put up with it as long as she did. Of course, eventually she got tired of it. She, she did something about it. But she was long-suffering, anyhow. But uh, we're going to Winston-Salem. Everything is going to be all right. We're going to start life anew. We're going to make these new friends. And we're going to live once again as human beings. I went to Wilson. I stayed sober about a month or six weeks because I went on ahead, secured a home, beautiful house, big eight-room house, beautiful garden, little swimming pool. And I said, I know Vi and the children will really enjoy this. I couldn't do this thing whole hog. I refused to drink whiskey. But I did drink beer, plenty of it. But for some reason, I've never been able to drink enough beer to actually affect me too much. But after about six weeks, I wrote by and suggested that uh, it was about time that she and the kids make some tracks further south. And it happened to be just around Christmas time. It never dawned on me that uh, she needed some money. Though I had mailed a little token home possibly a couple of weeks prior to this. But I mailed her a lousy $12. $12. Not for incidental, but to bring our Christmas supply of liquor. We must celebrate at Christmas. So the good wife, instead of going to Winston-Salem, she wrote me a very beautiful letter stating that she had secured a job in Washington and that she thought for the time being that it was best that she remain there for the sake of the children and their schooling, and as much as they were familiar with the school system there in the district. And you can imagine what happened then. I drank for far less reason. But that, in my mind, was a genuine reason. And I drank more than I had ever consumed in Washington. It was there that I started to even hemorrhage. You know that I lost a great deal of time from work because of my drunken sprees. 
made some good friends there. I drank to the point in Winston-Salem that I was reinvestigated in the government service. But like an alky, we're a thrilled group of individuals. We know the right people, and we apparently do just the right things at the right time. You know that investigation came out? Just fine. A whole lot of people were made liars of that was telling the truth. Then eventually came the time that I could no longer stay in Winston. I had to come back to Washington. I transferred. My wife and I went back together. We're no more at this point of paying notes on a few pieces of property. We're now reduced to a room and a kitchen. We cook in this room. We sleep in this room. We entertain in this room. We're reduced to that at this point. She's working two of our children, a farm to her mothers in the country, and she's attempting to do something for the elder girl that is with her. Once again, we're going to make this thing together. And once again, I was a complete failure. It was at this point in July of 44 that we finally decided with the aid of the district attorney or commonwealth as you'd call it that I should go and live with my mother and that I should not molest my wife under any circumstances. This thing actually grieved me because I'm still deeply in love with my wife. But I'm forced into this thing. Until eventually, I guess, I got in some pretty serious trouble about it. I guess I brooded about it a little too much. But I'm an alcoholic. I'm not able to face life as the average individual. When men lose their wives by the thousands. They're able to give them up. They're able to substitute something else. I wasn't. Even though I wasn't a fit husband, and I knew that, but I still thought that she was giving me a raw deal by leaving me out in the world all by myself, nothing but a little kid. Though I was 40 years of age. Somewhere in the month of November, I had a payday on the 23rd, the 25th of November being my birthday. Of course, I had to celebrate, and I couldn't go back to work the 24th, and I had to take off the 25th because that was my birthday, and I had to celebrate. But this happened on the 24th. I don't know, again, how I arrived at this destination, whether it was by... primary reservoir of power. 
God. Examine could mean understand, and the odd is us. First of all, us. We are three things, I think. Alcoholic, Alcoholic Anonymous, and agnostic. Alcoholic, which means to me that we have the tremendous drive of fear, which is the beginning of wisdom. We have the tremendous drive of shame, which is the nearest thing to innocence. Sackville Mallon, Honorable Secretary of all Irish alcoholics of both Ireland's, likes to quote some author whose name I forget. And all, and he says, and alcohol doth, no, and alcohol doth do more than Milton can to make straight the ways of God to man. Alcoholics Anonymous, not merely alcoholics, but Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill spoke last night of the outside bouncer in Alcoholics Anonymous, John Barleycorn. But I've always felt that there's an inside bouncer who is crueler. And that is a corporate sneer for a phony. And who of us is not a phony? I think that is, in all groups, you have the problem of people of lynx-eyed virtue, and that is a drive. Third qualification, I think we are agnostic. I believe there are three groups qualitatively in AA. First of all, they are the devout. Who, to who, who didn't seem to be able to apply their old line religious truth. They were agnostic as to application. Then there are the rusty, the priest who passed the man in the ditch before the uh, good Samaritan helped him. A very good priest friend of mine who says, I really think that the first thing we shall say when we get to heaven is, my God, it's all true. I think all of us are rusty in some phases of either our substantive or applicational beliefs. And then there are the sincere 18 carat agnostics who all who have difficulty with that spiritual hurdle. Uh, the second word is understand. And I think as we move from an obscure and confused idea of God toward a more clear and distinct idea, I think we should realize that our idea of God will always be lacking, always to that degree unsatisfying. Because to understand and to comprehend God 
It's to be equal to God. But it will grow. I am sure that Bill sitting in that chair and Dr. Bob, whose angel is probably sitting on that oddly misplaced empty chair, are growing in the knowledge of God. An old German saying is, and it applies here, very few of us know how much we have to know in order to know how little we know. And I'm sure Dr. Bob and Bill would certify that. The approach to this not understanding, first of all, negative, and the first step, as we examine ourselves, who was our latest God, uh, is uh, a, a fine approach to God. It was the approach of Peter the Apostle. Lord, to whom shall we turn? I think we should realize that there is, I doubt if there's anybody in this hall who really ever sought sobriety. I think we were trying to get away from drunkenness. I don't think we should despise the negative. And I, I know I have a feeling that if I ever should find myself in heaven, I think it will be from backing away from hell. <coughs> now, there, <coughs> at this point, heaven seems as boring as uh, sobriety does <laughs> to an alcoholic ten minutes before he quits. However, there are positive approaches. And the twelfth step mentions one, I still weep, that the senators of the movement have dropped the word experience for awakening. Experience is one of the ways that's mentioned by the twelve steps. And in the second step, another way, belief. Now experience can be two kinds, sudden, passive, insight, like Bill's experience, like the grapevine story of that Christmas Eve in Chicago, those are all in the valid pattern of Saul having that sudden passive insight as he was struck from his horse on the road to Damascus. There are other types, probably dearer to God since they are commoner, and those are the routine, active observations of what? I am sober today. I am sober today. This meeting this morning, uh, this convention this week, and as experience distilled, and condenses, it becomes suffering. The other night, Bernard Smith, chairman of the AA's uh, trustees, I get that hierarchy all mixed up. 
said something which to me was so good that I took it down. He said, the tragedy of our life is how deep must be our suffering before we learn the simple truths by which we can live. Sometime before Whitaker Chambers became a well-known character, <clears throat> in his sister publication, he was on time then, he wrote in life an article called The Devil. And quoting Satan, Whitaker Chambers says this, here's Satan talking, and yet it is at this very point that man, that monstrous midget, still has the edge on the devil, he suffers. Not one man, however base, quite lacks the capacity for this specific suffering, which is the seal of his divine commission. Uh, the second approach, which is mentioned in the second step, came to believe I've, I've known some of my Catholic friends who at that step said, well, I believe already, so I don't have to do any caming. And in a great burst of kindness, they kept drinking to let the Protestants catch up with them. Belief is uh, capitalizing on the experience of others. Blessed are the lazy, for they shall find their shortcuts. What others? Your sponsor. The AA experience of two decades on two continents. Newman says that the essence of belief is to look outside ourselves. Dr. Keeble seems to think that psychi psychiatrically the great problem is the turning of our affection from self outwardly. Faith is hard as hard and as easy as sobriety, and has been called the greatest of our undeveloped resources. What experience should we seek? What, ex what beliefs should we accept in our quest for God? The third word then would be God. Bill Early wrote a letter, I have it, in which he said, as far as how the alcoholic shall work out his dependence on God is none of AA's business. Whether it's in this church, or whether it's in a church or not in a church, whether it's in that church or this church, is none of AA's business. In fact, he implied, I don't think it's any of the alcoholic, um, the member's business. It's God's business. And the AA's business is charted in the 11th step. 
seek through meditation and prayer to find God's will and to seek the courage to follow it out. And not in the spirit of propaganda and abusing this opportunity, but rather to share what I have found to be God's will, I'd like to offer some thoughts. I do believe that the problem which half of this room has had in attaining sobriety, I have had in attaining belief and faith. Uh, where do you start? Well, I, I believe there's something to be said about starting at the nearest manifestation of God. Where is God nearest to me? Does the fish soar to find the ocean? Does the eagle plunge to find the air? That, we ask, of the stars in motion, if they have rumor of thee out there, not where the wheeling systems darken and our benumbed conceiving soars, the drift of angel pinions, would we hearken, beats at our own clay shuttered doors. Somewhere out in the swirling universe, light years beyond the reach of our strongest telescope, Halley's Comet is making its round. Some of us saw it in 1910. Some of you in this room will see it in 1986. Those are called the perihelion. They're the points at which they are closest. Halley's is closest. And obviously, to study Halley's Comet now is a waste of time. It must be done at 1910, or it must be done in 1986, when it's close. Where is God's perihelion? Where is God's nearest? When is God's nearest? Is God nearest? Life magazine, in this recent article on the great religions and the great leaders, mentioned, of course, all the significant beliefs available, systematic beliefs. Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, none of them claimed divinity. None of them ever claimed that for routine purposes that God is visible on earth, save one. And that is a man who said, he who seeth me seeth the Father. That's blasphemy, a lie, or the truth. He said, I and the Father am one. Before Abraham was, I am. And even to escape crucifixion, he wouldn't head on the accuser's uh, indictment. 
who felt that he was guilty of blasphemy. And his answer was to the claim, Thou hast said it. Dostoevsky says that faith in the divinity of Christ is the Christian faith, pure and simple. And down the ages, that has been the central belief of his followers. Of all the life's series of religions, the Christianity claims to present God at the closest perihelion. We know AA's 12 steps of man toward God. May I suggest in God's 12 steps toward man, as Christianity appeals to me. The first step is described by St. John, the Incarnation. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And he turned his life and his will over to the care of man as he understood him. The second step, nine months later, Closer to us in the circumstances of it is the birth, the nativity. Third step, the next 30 years, anon the anonymous hidden life. Closer because it is so much like our own. The fourth step, then three years of the public life closer to us because it met our cravings, our aspirations, his teaching, his example, our Lord's Prayer. The fourth, the fifth step, the, his emphasis in that public life was to people like ourselves, sinners, wine-bibbers, poor, skid-row panhandlers, Sixth step, the fifth step, I guess six, six. Bodily suffering, including thirst on Calvary. The sixth, the next step, soul suffering in Gethsemane. That's coming close. How well the alcoholics know and how well he knew humiliation and fear and loneliness and discouragement and futility. Finally, death, another step closer to us. And I think the Pieta, where a dying God rests in the lap of a human mother, is as far down as divinity can come and probably the greatest height that humanity can reach. And down the ages, he comes closer to us as head of a sort of a Christian's anonymous a mystical body laced together by his teachings, whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. I can fill up what is wanting in the sufferings of Christ. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick. I was hungry and you gave me to eat. The next step, tenth, the Christian church, which I believe is Christ here today. I think a great many sincere people feel, and they're in the room, 
They say, I like Christianity, but I don't like churchianity. And I can understand that. I understand it better than you do because I'm involved in churchianity and it bothers me too. But, actually, I think that sounds a little bit like, I do love good drinking water, but I hate plumbing. Now, who likes plumbing? Uh, um, and you have people who won't take AA, see? They like sobriety, but so-and-so with AA. Uh, and then the 11 steps are several great big inch-type lines or sacraments of God's help. And the 12th step to me is the great pipeline or sacrament of communion. The Word that was God became flesh and becomes our food, as close to us as the fruit juice and the toast and the coffee we had an hour ago. Now, oh, we know the story of alcoholic flight from God and movement toward him. Lord, give me sobriety, but not yet. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I don't think there's an AA in this room who isn't worrying about one of those steps. And praise God, Lord, let me make that step, but not yet. And I think the picture of AA's quest for God, but especially God's loving chase for the AA, was never put more beautifully than in what I think is one of the greatest lyrics and odes in the English language, written by a narcotic. And I think alcohol is a narcotic, so he might be able to make it. It's a poem called The Hound of Heaven that likens God to a hunting dog. Let me just pull off a few of the lines and I'll sit down. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him. And under running laughter, up vested hopes I sped, and shot precipitated a down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But, and here's his description of God, with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed and majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the thief. All things betray thee who betrayest me. And I'll skip, not shelters thee who will not shelter me. Lo, not contents thee who contentest not me. 
In the rash lustihood of my young powers, I shook the pillaring hours and pulled my life upon me. Grimed with smears, I stand amidst the dust of the mounded years. My mangled youth lies dead beneath the heap. My days have cracked and gone up in smoke, have puffed and burst as sun starts on a stream. Now of the long chase comes at last the end. That voice is around me like a sounding sea, bursting sea. And the voice says, in conclusion, And is thy earth so marred, shattered in shard and shard, lo, all things fly thee, but thou flyest me. Strange, piteous, futile thing, wherefore should any set thee love apart? See none but I, God says, see none but I make much of naught, and human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited of all man's clay, clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignobly, save me, save only me? And this I find to so. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harm, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. And the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic answers, Halt by me that footfall is my gloom after all, shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. And God's answer, Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou drovest love from thee who drovest me. Thank you. Dear friends, this is not as I have told you. There goes a man that we'd all like to be like. Now sitting just beyond him is another man that we'd all like to be like. I thought as I listened, how many thousands of hours have some of us in this room, including me, spent in deriding the men of religion? And yet is it not true? 
that they have taught us all we know are things spiritual? Isn't it true that compared with their examples, we're only a little long, a little way along the road? We have in AA a saying that principles ought to come before personalities. Well, it is through Sam that most of our principles have come. That is, he has been the connecting link for them. It is what Ebby learned from Sam and what Ebby told me that makes up the linking between Sam, a man of religion, and ourselves. How well I remember that first day I caught sight of Sam. It was a Sunday service in his church. I was still rather gun-shy and diffident about churches. I can still see him standing there before the lectern. And Sam's utter honesty, his tremendous forthrightness, his almost terrible sincerity, struck me deep. I shall never forget it. I introduce to you one of the great channels, one of the great streams of influence that have gathered themselves together into what is now AA, Sam Schumer. Bill gives me a chance to talk to AA, he says things about me to other people in my hearing, which if I said them about him in the hearing of other people, he would say was bad for him. The rest of us suffer from egotism just as much as any alcoholic does, and it's just as bad for us, I'm afraid, to be flattered. I got well flattered the other day. When I first got here, a gal that I had never met before said to me, are you an alcoholic? And I said, no. And she said, well, you talk like one. Now, just to get this record straight, I have always felt that Bill gave me a great deal more credit for having anything to do with getting this amazing outfit started than I really should have been given. But Bill's perceptions are very deep, and as we have noticed in many of the meetings where he has spoken to us, his memories are very sharp, and so I just cheerfully accept these 
allegations of his because one of the most joyous things in my whole very joyous life has been the association that I've had with the people in AA. And I am deeply grateful for the privilege of being here with you for this tremendous occasion. Last autumn at his 20th anniversary dinner, I first heard Bill give the story of the various strands which woven together have made the strong cable of AA. We all know by now that the first things that got into his mind as offering any real hope was talking with some men in whom there was the beginnings of a real religious experience. One of them is here now. They had begun to find this through the old Oxford group in its earlier and I think better days. And much of its work centered at that time in my old parish, Calvary, on Gramercy Park in New York. I take it that it began to be clear quite early in the movement's life that Dr. Jung's simple declaration that science had no answer and Dr. Silkworth's incalculable help from the medical angle and William James's great wisdom in the varieties of religious experience still left the need for a spiritual factor that would create a kind of synthesis and offer a kind of positive dynamics. The problem was how to translate the spiritual experience into universal terms without letting it evaporate into mere ideals and generalities. And so immediately after step one, which concerned the unmanageableness of life, came step two. We came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. The basis of that belief was not theoretical, it was evidential. Right before us were people in whose lives was the beginning of a spiritual transformation. You could question the interpretation of the experience, but you couldn't question the experience itself. In the third and fourth chapter of Acts is the story of the healing of a lame man by Peter and John. A lot of the ecclesiastics wanted to know how this came about. And the apostles told them that it was through the name of Christ that this man was healed. And it says, And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now you can fight a theory about an experience, but you've got to acknowledge the experience itself. AA has been, I think, supremely wise in emphasizing the reality of the experience and in acknowledging that it came from a higher power than human and leave the interpretation part pretty much at that. It would, I think, have been easy and must have been something of a temptation to go into the theological business. Here the evidence was. It was evidence of spiritual power. All right, then, let's define the power. But that would have run against several possible difficulties. If they had said more, 
some people would have wanted them to say a great deal more and define God in the way acceptable and congenial to themselves. It would only have taken two or three groups like this, descending from one another, to wreck the whole business. Moreover, there were people with an unhappy association with religion, a dead church or a dull parking, or some church-going people who have worked weekday lives did not support their Sunday profession. Added another factor to be overcome as if we didn't have enough already. Also, there are the agnostics and the atheists who either say that they don't know anything at all about these ultimate realities in the universe or possibly that they disbelieve in God altogether. I would like to quote for those who believe themselves still to be without faith in God a wonderful word from the Roman Catholic Spanish philosopher Unamuno who said those who deny God deny him because of their despair at not finding him. For an outfit like this to become dogmatic would have been fatal, I think. So they stuck to the inescapable experiences and turned people, told people to turn their wills and their lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And that left the theory and the theology as Father Ed has just been saying to us, important as they are, to the churches to which people belong. And if they belong to no church and could hold no con consistent theory, then they had to give themselves to the God that they saw in other people. That's not a bad way to set in motion the beginnings, I think, of a spiritual experience. Maybe that's what we all do at the point where religion changes over for us from a mere tradition to a living power. Now, I believe in the psychological soundness of all this. Don't think that applies to alcoholics alone. I think that applies to everybody who is seeking genuine spiritual faith and experience. When one has done the best he can with intellectual reasoning, there yet comes a time for decision and for action. It may be a relatively simple decision, such as to enter fully into the experiment. I think the approach is much more like science than it is like philosophy. We don't so much try to reason it out in abstract logic. We choose a hypothesis. We act as if it were true and see whether it is. And if it's not, we discard it. And if it is, we are free to call the experiment a success. You can sit about in a vacuum, whether that be the privacy of your own room, or an academic classroom, or indeed a pulpit, and discuss the truth of a theory forever, and it may do you no good. It's when you let truth go into action. It's when you hurl your life after your held conception of truth that things start to happen. If it's genuine truth, it will, I believe, accomplish things on the plane of actual living. If God is what Christ said he is, he is more eager to help us than we are to be helped. He does not trespass on man's freedom, and we can reject him and deny him and ignore him as long as we like. But when we open the door on a spiritual search, with our whole lives thrown into it, 
we shall find him always there, ready to receive our feeblest approaches, our most selfish and childish prayers, our always entirely unworthy selves, and get down to business with us. The experimental approach seems to me to be of the essence of our finding the help of a higher power. We first lean on another human being who seems to be finding the answer, and then we lean on the higher power that stands behind him. William James, in the famous passage in the Varieties of Religious Experience, says this, the crisis of self-surrender is the throwing of our conscious selves on the mercy of powers which, whatever they may be, are more ideal than we are actually and make for our redemption. Self-surrender has been and always must be regarded as the vital turning point of the religious life. That was almost a turning point in my thinking, that sentence. Self-surrender has must be regarded as the vital turning point of the religious life. Goes on to say, one may say that the whole development of Christianity in inwardness has consisted in little more than the greater and greater emphasis attached to this crisis of self-surrender. Now that, of course, becomes the heart of all real religions. Most of us come to God in the first instance from a need. If you want to say so, we come selfishly. I would like to point out that before we can possibly be of any use to anybody else, we must find the beginnings of an answer for ourselves, so that this may represent a necessary step in progress. There's a great hue and cry today on the part of some people about those who seek benefits from God. I would like to know where in heaven's name a bewildered and defeated person is going to go for the help he desperately needs if he doesn't go to God for it. Of course he's concerned about himself. He can't help it. He ought to be. He must be if he is ever going to be made useful to other people. But later on, he must also grow up and stop just using God and begin to ask God to use him. Stop asking God to do what he wants and begin to try to find out what it is that God wants. Many a person tells you they've given up faith. They prayed for something they wanted and it didn't come and if there's no God or else he hasn't got any interest in them. What childish nonsense. How can anybody expect God to listen to the half-baked prayer that a lot of us send up to him. He'd have the world in the worst chaos and it is now in five minutes. Prayer is not telling God what we want. It's putting ourselves at his disposal so that he can tell us what he wants. Prayer is not trying to get God to change his will. It's trying to find out what his will is. To align ourselves or realign ourselves with his purpose for the world and for us. That's why it's so important for us to listen as well as talk when we pray. Why it's good to begin these meetings with silence. Now oftentimes we come feverishly and willfully and we've just got to quiet down before God can do anything for us. 
While our own voices are clamorous and demanding, there isn't any place for the voice of God. When we let that willfulness cool out of us, and that's the thing most of us non-alcoholics get drunk on, just willfulness. Just wanting life on our own terms, and it's as neurotic as any neuroticism ever was. Everybody that's away from God and trying to do his own will in defiance of God is half crazy. I say, till our own clamorous, demanding voices quiet down, we can't hear the voice of God. When we let that willfulness cool out of us, God can get his will across to us as much as we need to see directly ahead of us. Daddy said in his will is our peace. Now, a lot of people don't like the weakness that is implied in that word surrender. And I'm thankful to hear Dr. Thiebaud use that word. And the medical doctor the other day also. These people like to think strong characters who can take care of their own destinies. That is always fictitious thinking. Everybody in this world is some kind of a weakness. And if he thinks he is not, then pride is his weakness and that's of all. think that they have overcome or never been overcome by overtly disreputable sins, but who of us avoid selfishness and self-centeredness and relation and the love of power and pride? I think that man is fortunate whose problem get him into trouble, so he's got to do something about him. Temper and pride and laziness and irritability and indifference to human trouble and that God often is the worst thing about most of us in a day when everybody is meant to be bigger. What did those things got us into difficulties? For they're just as bad as anything that ever got you. Nobody is strong. And the people that think they are strong are only self-deceived. We act as if character and reasonably good behavior were the end of all existence. The real questions in life which underlie these matters of behavior are definitely of a religious nature. And they have only a religious answer. An answer that comes from God. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing here? And where do I go when I die? Those are questions that unanswered leave us really without direction, without mooring, and actually without value. But science hasn't got any answer to those things. And philosophy only has the answers of good human guesses. Religious faith is the one candle in man's darkness, in the mystery of life. If Christ came down from heaven to represent God and speak for him, we have got an answer. 
The lesser revelations to prophets and seers are of the same nature, but not of the same authority, as Father Ed has been suggesting to us. But all truly wise men begin with the acknowledgement of their finiteness, their darkness, and their need. When we get through to God, by whatever name we call him, or rather when we let him get through to us, then we begin finding light and the answer. Now, I think the great need of our time is for vast, worldwide, spiritual awakening. There are many signs that it is upon us. Western man is gradually getting it through his head that he owes the greatest of all blessings, human blessings, the blessing of liberty, to God and religion. When Benjamin Franklin was in Paris at the end of the 18th century, he took his son round one day to call on Voltaire. And as they were leaving, he asked Voltaire to give the boy a blessing. Well, I could think of better people than Voltaire to ask for a blessing, but that's what he did. And Voltaire put out his old bony hands on that boy's head, and he said, God and liberty, my son, remember those words. Those words are cognate. They are correlative. There's an indissoluble connection between the two things. And I think the gradual perception of that fact, as well as our personal insecurity, lies behind the greatly increased interest in religion that characterizes our time. Now, I believe there are four universal factors in all genuine spiritual awakening. And those four factors are conversion, and prayer, and fellowship, and witness. By conversion, I mean the place where a person turns toward God, where he begins to want to be honest about himself in the light of his religion. I don't mean perfection. I mean the search for it and the start towards it. That start is within the reach of us all, and that's the beginning. You know what a lot of religious people are like? They're like a lot of people sitting around a railroad station thinking they're on a train. Everybody's talking about travel, and you hear the names of stations, and they got tickets around them, and the smell of baggage, and there's a great kind of a stir, and if you sit there long enough, you almost think you're on the train. But you're not. Now, you start to get converted at the point where you get on the train and get pulled out of the station. And you get pulled out, you don't walk out. When I leave for... Pittsburgh this afternoon, I won't be in Pittsburgh right away, but I'll be darn soon out of St. Louis. Now, I think you're converted when you get on the train. That means you got to go downstairs and you got to get up those steps and get in there. Now, the second thing is prayer. And prayer, either private or group or public, is the place where we get in touch with God and God's power. God's power is always there, as there is always potential electricity, 
in a wire that's plugged into a socket that's in touch with a dynamo. But you don't get the power till you close the circuit by turning the switch. Prayer, in ways to me, theoretically quite unfathomable, but always open to us actually, turns on the switch, opens up the power by closing the circuit. We don't so much... Oh, they've got a great need gathered together to find an answer in worship towards God and in fellowship with one another. The church is not a museum, it's a hospital. That's why we all belong to it and why we all should. Two old pagans went into the Episcopal Church one day and they got in just in time to hear the minister say, we've left undone the things we ought to have done and we've done the things we ought not to have done and he nudged his pal, he said, we're in the right place, all right. Get over the idea that because you go to church, you're good. You go to church to try to get in touch with God and let God redeem you, and incidentally, you try to get good. By the grace of God, not your own bootstrap. And then witness comes by life and by word. I think there are a lot of self-righteous people in the world that think they're being a tremendously good influence. But they're so much like everybody else in the world. There's not much edge. There's not much difference. It's when a spiritual experience has begun that changes us deeply on the inside. The chief characteristic of which I think is not that it makes us better, but that it makes us more humble and more conscious that we're not very good at all. Then I think people begin to get interested. And they wonder what happened to us, and they begin asking questions. And then there's time to open up by the witness of words. We don't preach to other people. We don't talk down to them. God knows we don't point to ourselves as answers. But we share the beginnings of a victory that we know. Every real believer shares in 12-step work. Every real believer wants to get his belief across to other people. And he will take the trouble to try to learn how to do it by life and by word. Now the parallels between those four points and your twelve steps are obvious to anybody. To me, AA is one of the great signs of spiritual awakening in our time. It is experimental and experiential in nature, not dogmatic. But none can doubt that God is what has made AA today, what inspires it, what keeps it going, what is that perfectly intangible but absolutely unmistakable spirit that we have felt again and again since we've been here in St. Louis. I'm thankful that the church has so widely associated itself with AA because I think AA people need the church for personal stabilization and growth, but also because I think the church needs AA as a continuous spur to greater aliveness and expectation and power. They are meant to complement and supplement each other. I believe that AA will go on serving men and women as long as it may be needed. If it keeps open to God for inspiration, open to one another for fellowship, 
and open the people outside for service. I think he has been wise to confine its organized activity to alcoholics. But I hope and I believe that we may yet see a wide effect of AA on medicine, on psychiatry, on correction, on education, on the ever-present problem of human nature and what we shall do about it, and not least on the church. Indirectly, I believe that AA has derived its inspiration and its impetus from the insights and the beliefs of the church. Now perhaps the time has come for the church to be reawakened and revitalized by the insights and practices found in AA. I don't know any fields of human endeavor in which the twelve steps are not applicable and helpful. I believe AA may yet have a much wider effect upon the world of our day and contribute greatly to the spiritual awakening which I believe is on the way, but which has come none too soon. For the world of our time is not sitting pretty. And so, on this occasion, when AA turns a historic corner, when the leadership will soon fall upon a wider company than in the past, let's give thanks to God for his goodness to us, for the way he has guided and prospered and used and enriched and developed this wonderful force in our time, and for all the promise that AA holds out for uncounted thousands and perhaps millions in the future. God bless AA forever. It is a common place of AA to say that our leaders do not drive by mandate. They lead by example. Surely we have been led this morning by magnificent example, example without which this society might never have been. And I think it is altogether fitting, if it's my concluding part of this session, <coughs> if I would read to you the prayer of one of the saints, whose example is so near and so dear to us all. I say that because he talks of pure love as we understand pure love. Lord, 
Make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love, that where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord, I may bring harmony, that where there is error, I may bring truth, that where there is doubt, I may bring faith, that where there is despair, I may bring hope, that where there are shadows, I may bring thy light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved, for it is by giving that one receives, it is by self-forgetting that one finds. It is, be, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven, and it is by dying that one awakes to eternal life. meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>